Hey, good morning. Great to see you. Thanks, Aaron and band, for leading us in worship. And, uh, oh, I'm supposed to stay inside this line. Otherwise, the camera people get whiplash. So uh, that'll take a little discipline. You can pray for me about that. Uh, I'm also a little concerned about some other, something else. Uh, I don't mind the cameras there, but that side camera, so like, I feel like I don't really need to gotta keep from breathing during the message, so I look as slim as all these other svelte young people who are up here. So uh, Anyway, hey, we're going to look at uh, a couple of things. This uh, message this morning has two parts. The first part will have to do with how messages are delivered. Part two will have to do with the message itself. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will give us uh, something to hang our hats on this morning, something that stirs our hearts about the message of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Robert Putnam is a uh, secular Jewish sociologist. He's got no axe to grind. He's just looking at the data, demographic material, and uh, there's some recent findings that are pretty intriguing. Back in the early 1990s, not that long ago, at least it seems not that far far away from me, uh, about one out of three people from the age 18 to 29 nationwide considered themselves part of some local congregation. One out of three. Pretty decent average for that age group. But something happened from 2000 to 210. That percentage dropped in half. So that by the end of 2010, only about 16% of people 18 to 29 considered themselves part of some local congregation. In researching the data about why there was that precipitous drop, there were two primary reasons that just dwarfed any other explanation. The first was that the conservative church in America began to be seen as almost entirely allied to a particular political agenda. And the the people 18 to 29 were saying, we can go somewhere else for political agendas. We're coming to church for something we can't get anywhere else. The second was that they concluded that the church was the one social institution in the United States where you could not ask real questions. Partly because since we project that we already have all the answers, there really is no place for dialogue, only for just listening. Now, in the backdrop of that piece of insight, we're going to look at method and message this morning about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a Christian and what a Christian believes. Now, if you came in this morning and uh, you don't have a lot of church background or you don't have much background with this church, uh, one of the things you might have noticed right off the bat is this is not my mom's church. I grew up in church. My mom played piano her entire life during church. Uh, Marie Yoakum was on the organ. Uh, my mom taught Sunday school as long as I can remember. She was head of the Women's Auxiliary Association. I grew up in church. 
And you know, in the church I grew up in, which was pretty typical, if in the middle of the service, you had to slip out and go to the bathroom and you came back five years later, you wouldn't have felt like you missed anything. In fact, they might still be on the same verse. (laughs) Because it was a pretty stable setting. Now, you compare that with slipping in here this morning, bumping into somebody with a latte or a mocha, stepping stepping into a basketball court with three screens and Christmas lights well past the holiday season, a band strung all the way across a stage as big as some buildings. And you think, oh, okay. But you know, is all this really necessary? Now let's, let's take a little jump into a historical person. If you're in the 18 to 29 or so, you, you can't hardly grasp the power and influence this one man had on Christianity in the United States. Billy Graham preached the gospel personally, in person, to more people than any man in the history of the world. In the heyday of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, his crusades would fill entire football stadiums. A hundred thousand people would come. He preached to a congregation of one million people in person in Korea. And all over the world, he drew those kinds of crowds with a very simple format. They'd sing a little. They'd have a big choir. They'd usually have somebody like Johnny Cash or a special guest give a testimony or sing a song, and he'd get up and preach, and he'd invite people to come forward if they wanted to receive the Christ that he was talking about. And he did that all over the world. He fundamentally changed the face of the modern conservative church in the United States. When he started the a church that was part of a movement that we would consider ourselves part of was highly anti-intellectual. The Christian liberal arts university movement was championed by Billy Graham. He was a founder of Christianity Today, a magazine designed to give intellectual credibility to conservative evangelical Christianity. He was from North Carolina, but he would not allow a crusade that was not integrated, no matter how much pressure was put upon him. And that was whether his crusades were in the South or even in Africa, in South Africa, where he insisted not only that blacks and whites be allowed to come to the service, but be allowed to sit in the same sections. Unheard of. And in the midst of Those positions that he took with staggering influence, he was not anti-culture. In a day when the church that he was part of was very anti-culture. And so, 
back in the 50s and 60s as part of the arm of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, he started a movie production company. When Christians who went to conservative churches did not go to movies. I was not inside a movie theater till I was 16 years old. There were sermons against movies, and it got a little dicey when more and more people got a television, but Christianity has never allowed inconsistency to blur the message. So, so, so they just didn't go to movies. Yeah, well, what in the world is Billy Graham doing? Well, first he started producing movies because some of his crusades were in Los Angeles, and people in the movie and the music industry were coming to Christ. And so he started producing movies, and he would rent a gymnasium, a high school gymnasium. And I remember when our church went from uh, Williston, North Dakota, across the border to Sydney, Montana, to watch Oil Town, USA. When Oil Town, USA was a movie, uh, set in the oil country with Stuart Hamlin, who was a movie star and a singer. But you know, the people who were going to those were mostly church people. And that's not who Billy Graham was trying to reach. So then he decided he was going to produce a movie for the theater. And he produced a movie called The Restless Ones. Now, the Restless Ones starred Kim Darby. The first true grit with John Wayne, the young woman in that movie, was Kim Darby. And that was the star of that movie. And they would rent theaters because at the end of the movie, they would actually have an altar call, which was typical of the Billy Graham Association. So they would rent the theater, and all over the United States, churches like I grew up in were having board meetings to decide whether they would let their pastor and church support this movie that was going to be in a theater. And that was the first time I was in a movie theater, when I went to see The Restless Ones. Then he decided that he he wanted people to hear the gospel message even without any of the trappings of typical Christianity. And so the first movie they produced within that context, which was made for general release just into a theater, was The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place was a movie about Corrie Ten Boom and her Dutch family that hid Jews because of their own Christian faith, hid Jews during the reign of Nazi, in in the reign of Nazi Germany. Now, what was he doing? Against the face of, of what appeared to be how traditional Christianity functioned, he knew way before his time that if you want to speak to someone, you speak in their language. And he looked down the road and he saw that part of the language of the future would be visual images. And not even Billy Graham could have guessed that there would come a time when three companies would have such power that even nations and states would pay attention and alter how they functioned as governments because of Microsoft, Google, and Facebook. But he knew it. And because he wanted the ear of the people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, he significantly altered 
how the message was delivered. Now, there's actually a theological word for that, and the theological word is the incarnation. The incarnation is God becoming man in Jesus Christ to communicate His love and nature to us. It's the incarnation. And God came in a certain form for a certain reason. He didn't just pick some casual form indiscriminately. He came in human form, born of Mary. Father was a carpenter, poor to lower middle class. He suffered. He died. Do you know that in that day that Jesus walked the earth, there were people who could not accept Jesus as the Messiah because they could not get over the form in which God came. And there were other people who did accept the message for that very reason, because of the form in which the gospel was brought. They could relate to that form. That form spoke their language. We have a high priest who has touched with every infirmity that we have had, yet without sin. This high priest, this person who walked their walk in their shoes, on their earth, in their situations. This Jesus, whom we are told has experienced everything that you have experienced, every type of oppression and sin he experienced So that when you talk to him, you are talking to someone who knows, who understands exactly what's going on. The form Jesus took enabled many to be able to embrace that message. And so, even though this isn't my mama's church, it is a church that regularly wrestles with the delivery of the gospel so that people can hear. My, my brother-in-law was a missionary in Bolivia for 17 years, and he knew the importance of bringing a message in a particular delivery system so that a particular audience could hear what the message was in a way that affirmed their own reality. Now, having said that, part one, man, that just means what? Everything's changing all the time? I mean, I can't, I'm just getting relaxed with email. And now people don't email me. They, they want to talk to me on Facebook. I can't handle that many people. So, Marcy's on Facebook, and I ask her, what's going on with our kids? And once in a while, if something interesting happens, I email them. And even this stuff. I mean, you know, know, we don't do all this just because Brandon likes techie stuff. But man, I mean, they just, they talk a different language. They, uh... And you know, you, you want to hear an inside scoop about tech people? They're last-minute people. <laughs> I mean, when I'm working with this kind of stuff, I'm starting a week ahead. 
They're back in the booth 45 minutes before. Yeah, I don't know. We can't get this thing to boot up. You know, I'm sweating. They're, they're relaxed as can be. See, they know in the tech world there's about 10 roads to any destination. I, don't think, I only think there's one. So if the bridge is out, man, we're, we'll never get there. No, they'll just go through some other machine, through some other computer, into some camera, and out something else. They'll string some cord from one end to the other, and it'll all work. You hang back there. You've got to take pills just to walk through the tech booth. At least I do. But man, with all that changing, is anything stable? And you know, the answer is yes. Because amidst all the shifts in how the message is delivered, Journey Church is part of a great sea of witnesses to the fundamental core of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, to make this switch, we'll show a little video clip that seems in keeping with technological wonders. It's a clip out of the movie Contact. Contact Jodie Foster plays a scientist, and they think maybe they're getting some messages from another planet. And so they create this kind of like a spaceship, technical wonder, a half trillion dollars or half billion dollars is spent. She's part of all this thing. It appears to have failed. But she experienced something in the midst of it, and she's now in front of a congressional hearing trying to explain that something real happened when they don't believe her. So let's have a look at this. Dr. Erroway, you come to us with no evidence, no record, no artifacts. Only a story that, to put it mildly, strains credibility. Over half a trillion dollars were spent. Dozens of lives were lost. Are you really going to sit there and tell us we should just take this all on faith? Please answer the question, Doctor. Is it possible that it didn't happen? Yes. As a scientist, I must concede that. I must volunteer that. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You admit that you have absolutely no physical evidence to back up your story. Yes. You admit that you very well may have hallucinated this whole thing. You admit that if you were in our position, you would respond with exactly the same degree of incredulity and skepticism. Yes. Then why don't you simply withdraw your testimony and concede that this journey to the center of the galaxy, in fact, never took place? Because I can't. I had an experience I can't prove it I can't even explain it but everything that I know as a human being everything that I am tells me that it was real I was given something wonderful something that changed me forever a vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and 
how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. I wish I could share that. I wish that everyone, if even for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and hope. But <laughs> that continues to be my wish. The, uh, the Christian church in the world fights about a lot of things. I don't know if you've noticed. They're always fussing. They're fussing about how Jesus is going to return. You got pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-rapture, mid-trib, mid-rapture, post-rapture, amillennial, pre-millennial, post-millennial. You know, I think it's going to happen. He's going to show up and we're going to say, oh, that's how you did it. But for now, whole books, whole books are written about all the ways that Jesus might return. Then we fuss about how Christians grow. Well, it's just progressive. You you, you come to Christ and get saved, and then you have this growth rate, or some, no, no, there's a crisis here. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. No, there's lots of crises here. You know, just show me that uh, something's happened in the last 18 months, and you're different today than you were 18 months ago. I'm good with that. You know, I figure the Holy Spirit's got his ways, but still we, we fuss about that. But you know something the Christian church has not been fussing about? It has not been fussing about the fundamental core idea of the Christian message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not been fussing about that for 1,350 years. By the mid-7th century, the Christian church had arrived at a composite. Remember when Jesus was asked, could you put all this into a Reader's Digest condensed version? And he said, you bet I can. It's all about this. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian church put into a Reader's Digest condensed version the fundamental core of what it means to be a Christian, believe the Christian worldview, and function out of the Christian reality, and it is called the Apostles' Creed. And it has been virtually unaltered since the mid-7th century. Isn't that amazing? that in a diverse and varied institution that spans the globe, this 107 words, 107 words, notice all the things that are not in it. This 107 words have been virtually unaltered since the mid-7th century. And this is what it is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. And on the third day he rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic or universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. 107 words virtually unchanged since the mid-7th century. Now, where did this thing come from? Well, interestingly, at least to me, a creed, which is a a set of beliefs, Christianity is one of the few world religions that's actually creedal. Islam has a very precise and complicated set of laws and rules that govern how it functions. Buddhism and Hinduism are almost entirely taken up with practices of particular rituals. Most tribal religions have as their basis a set of myths that govern how they function in reality. But Christianity, rising up out of Jewish, the Jewish tradition, is one of the few world religions that's actually creedal, that has a creed. And in, in the Jewish world, the creed started in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the, the, uh, the Shema. And here's, here's what it was. This was the first creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Then as Christ came and walked this earth and died and rose again, the Christian church began to work with that creed and expand it. By the year 325, the leaders of the church gathered in Nicaea. And by 381 A.D., they gathered again in Constantinople. And they kept working and working because they wanted to clearly describe who Jesus was and what he had accomplished. And they were, they were fighting off other views, like Gnosticism, which viewed that material was evil. Therefore, how could Jesus be the Son of God if he came in human flesh? And how could you be seen as created in the image of God if you have a body? He said, that cannot be part of the Christian message. And after work and revision and care, by the mid-7th century, this document of 107 words was set and has been virtually unaltered since then. Let's have a look at a few lines of that as we finish up this morning, should we? It starts with this statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in God. That's the starting point. That's the window through which we look at reality. In the beginning, God. And in the New Testament, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, 
Our reality starts with the existence of God. Now, that might not seem revolutionary, but it was. For one thing, it says we believe in God the Father. That means the, the original construct for our idea of God is relational. That God himself created the construct of wanting to be seen as a relational person. So all the way back into Deuteronomy, the schema said, and you're to love a relational term, God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And in the Greek culture, no Greek would ever create a relational construct for the deities in, in, in Greek, in Greece. Those deities were capricious, unpredictable, mean-spirited. The idea of one God who, though mysterious, is always trustworthy, unheard of. We believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. That all that you and I see, both the laws of gravity and the spiritual laws, are governed by the nature of God. So C.S. Lewis said it's like being in a shed, an old shed, and the door is shut, but there's cracks in the walls in the door, and so there are rays of light coming in, and you can see the rays of light. But not only do you see the rays of light, by the rays of light you see everything else in the room. And because of God, that I believe in God, and I look through that window to discern reality, I see everything else from that light. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. There's a couple things about Christ this creed talks about. One is the divinity of Jesus. See, Jesus came not just to give us some interesting words gathered together into cute little cute little uh, synopsis like the Sermon on the Mount. He came to transact something with a currency you and I didn't have. We could not transact our own forgiveness. We didn't have that currency, and Jesus Christ had that currency. And, And the Father sent him to this earth in order to make a transaction for us so that we might be released from our sins. Who was conceived of the Virgin Mary... suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Do you, do you notice how earthy that phrase is? That's all about here and now. That's all about this world, this ground that you and I walk on. That on this territory, he came. And he showed himself to be sufficient. And then there's this cryptic little phrase. He descended into hell. He rose again. He ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand. He descended into hell. What what in the world is that? Some think, well, it just meant that he was buried. But he already talks about being buried. Remember, we're only working with 107 words. They're not going to be repeating the same thing twice. Well, the Bible has phrases that it alludes to in the New Testament, like preaching to the captives. We don't know what happened between the time Jesus was buried and the time he rose again. 
but we, get, we, we have enough glimpses to know that he was doing something. And that's the allusion to this phrase, he descended into hell. And whatever it was he was doing, I think we can say this. That having descended into hell and then rising again, there is no domain nor dimension where Christ does not stand in authority. There is no domain nor dimension in which Christ does not stand in authority. Whether in the heavens or on this earth that the Father said he would make his footstool, or in hell itself, the authority of Christ reigns. And that's not just some immaterial statement. That means there's nothing going on in your life where Christ cannot stand in authority. And that the only thing that would prevent him would be my own choice or will. For he says, I stand at the door and knock. There is no dimension, nor domain, where the authority of Christ does not stand. And he will come to judge the quick and the, come, come to judge the living and the dead. Then it says this, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice how the, the last phrase shifts to a new order of things. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. An exchange was made. A new order was put into place. A new possibility entered your world and mine. I'm particularly taken with that phrase, the communion of saints. Because you know this little, this little phrase, this little thing of 107 words? You could be in Ethiopia and Africa or Chile in South America, or Ecuador, or Canada, or the United States, and Christians everywhere adhere to this. I taught a little leadership class uh, here uh, last month, so if you were in that, you'll notice this story. Let's finish with this. It occurs in the 1950s in the gulags of the prison camps of Russia. Reporters didn't go in and report. Nobody, nobody got to look into those camps where Stalin killed millions of people. Sometimes people were just shot if they opposed Stalin. But a lot of times, all you had to do was say something negative, and you weren't necessarily shot. You could actually be a supporter of the revolution, but... You're a little critical of Stalin. You heard, said something somebody else heard, and you ended up in, in one of these prisons. Interestingly, people who were for the revolution and atheists often ended up in these prisons with Christians because they were both considered subversive to the purposes of Stalin. So Christians and others were interacting in these prisons. 
One man who ended up in a prison was Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld. He was a Jewish doctor, put in a gulag for a period of time, a place of despair and discouragement. But the longer he was there, he bumped into a Christian, and the Christian started talking to him about his faith and how Jesus had a special message for the Jewish people, and Jesus' own nature was Jewish. And in the midst of this place, he began, Boris began to think about the message of Christ. And this Christian started praying the Lord's Prayer with him. Eventually, this Christian was transferred somewhere else, so Boris did not have contact. But he, he couldn't shake the message he had heard and the power of the Lord's Prayer. And he began to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly. Maybe other noticed first, but even Boris began to notice that his behavior began to change. He started being concerned about things he wasn't concerned about before. He started taking care of his patients differently than he had been taking care of them before. He was actually in a surgery, doing surgery on a guard. Now, doctors tended to be treated better than other prisoners because these gulags were isolated places, and so the doctors not only worked on the inmates, they also helped the guards. And no guard wanted a doctor working on him whom he had abused. But he was suturing up a wound from a knife wound and a guard, and he thought to himself as he was suturing it up, you know, I could suture this in such a way that this would break in just a few days, the guard would bleed to death, and nobody would be the wiser. He was horrified that he would think such a thing. And so he gave this guard his best attention, and he began to treat other people that way as well. It also impacted another event. A lot of uh, people there had intestinal problems because of the food, and they'd come to the infirmary, and they'd be given bread, which would help. But some of the guards and uh, inmates would eat other people's bread. So he finally went to the commandant, and he told him, he says, so-and-so's eating the bread. The commandant punished the other guy, but he thought it was uh, peculiar because stoolies, as they were called, people who told on other people, were being regularly killed in the camp. And he knew that the doctor was putting his own life in danger. The doctor said he, however, never felt freer in his life. Something had changed inside. He knew his life was in danger, and he started sleeping in the hospital, catching little naps whenever he could. And he wished he could tell somebody about what was happening in his life. One day, a young prisoner came in shivering, had a fever. Boris began to work on him, and he just thought, I've, I've got to tell him, even in the midst of his feverish condition. So he began to pour out to this prisoner what had happened in his own life. And Boris could tell that even in the midst of the fevers, this man was listening to what he was saying. The man awoke the next morning to the running of feet, found out that the doctor, Boris, had in fact been killed that night, bludgeoned to death as he tried to catch a short nap on one of the hospital beds. But the testimony that Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld left with this young prisoner would not go away, nor the Lord's prayer that he prayed. And the more he pondered it, 
the more he began to decide this was the view of reality that he would take. And so he became, in that gulag, a Christian. That prisoner that Boris Kornfeld shared the gospel with was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize-winning author who learned about Christ from another believer in a gulag when he had no hope. This 107 words is about that kind of transaction that we read about when we read the life of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it is about a transaction that can occur in your life and in my life as we put our faith in this biblically-based, fundamental view of reality and Jesus Christ. And so all over the world, on this weekend, as believers gather, they gather around these 107 words. And they proclaim, in unity, in the midst of all the diversity, in unity, that this we believe. Would you set your things aside and join me for a moment of prayer? Not only did Alexander Solzhenitsyn put his faith in Christ, you could do that today. This morning you could say, this makes sense to me. I don't have all the answers. But in the midst of all the shifts and changes, I want to have my feet on a bedrock. And I want to start looking at reality through the window that starts with God. And I want to know this Christ and stand with the communion of saints that includes people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And right where you're seated seated with your heads bowed in prayer and none of us looking around, you can say, Lord, would you come into my heart? I want to proclaim this as the foundation of my life. I want to look at reality through this window I want to experience the forgiveness and the divine Christ that we've talked about this morning. We're just going to wait for a moment. You can just do that right now. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I put my faith in you. Help me to build a new foundation in the midst of all the changes in my world. You just ask the Lord for that right now. Could I ask, if you're praying that prayer, nobody's going to embarrass you and no one's looking around, but would you just slip your hand up and say, I'm I'm asking the Lord for that this morning. Yeah, I see that right here in the middle. You bet. Over here on the right. Yep. Yep, up here in the front the middle again yeah put your hand down thank you anybody else 
Father, we pray for these who slip their hands up. You're changing them right now. You're bringing into their life the presence of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Bring some confirmation into their life quickly to let them know that what they've done is real, that you've seen it and participated in it, and their life can change. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.